From the Journeys of Belonging to Blackness Digital Media Project, I'm India Lorik Wilmot, and you're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is Glory Edom. She is a writer and founder of Well-Read Black Girl, a book club whose goal is to showcase the universality of Black women through literature and provide space for Black women readers and writers to connect and grow in conversation. Since 2015, Well-Read Black Girl's reading network has steadily grown in membership to include almost 250,000 thousand people online via Instagram alone. In 2017, Glory and her team organized its first Well-Read Black Girls Festival, which featured award-winning writers, including Jacqueline Woodson, Tayuri Jones, and Renee Watson. In 2018, Glory published her first book, an anthology of inspiring essays by Black women writers called Well-Read Black Girl, Finding Our Stories, Discovering Ourselves. To date, Glory has received a host of awards and recognitions, including the Madam C.J. Walker Award from the Hurston Wright Literary Foundation, the Innovators Award from the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and an Outstanding Literary Work nomination from the NAACP Image Awards. In addition to being a new mother, Glory is in the process of birthing two new book projects, a memoir and her second anthology, which we look forward to hearing more about. Welcome, Glory. Hi, who are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. And you're kicking off our season two of the podcast series. So what a way to start the fall. Oh, this is incredible. I'm glad to be a guest. I am a fan of your work. (laughs) And in addition to just enjoying the book itself, I'm really a fan of what you've been able to accomplish with Well-Read Black Girl, particularly in the ways you've used the platform of, of a literary network to intentionally highlight narratives that are often ignored or ones that disappear from our collective consciousness as it relates to African descended womanhood, the beauty and the diversity of our voices and experiences. I enjoy speaking to people like yourself. And I often wonder, how does this person get here? What was their journey like? Why do they do what they do? So you ready to get into it? Yes, I am. Act one, call to adventure. As a writer, entrepreneur, of course, there are paths that we take and processes that we engage in to get us to where we are today. And sometimes we do that emotionally. We have spiritual processes, intellectual ones, and so on. How did you become interested in doing the work you do today? Well, it was a long and very unexpected journey. And I think it really started for me at Howard University. My alumni really supported me and made me feel seen and and loved and the space where Black women aren't always valued, Howard University boosted and lifted me up. So it was there that I encountered Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and all these incredible authors that allowed me to see myself more clear and allowed me to really start to think about who I was in the world and the work that I wanted to do. And originally I majored in journalism and I minored in sociology And I was always surrounded by just incredible people that motivated me, whether it was my professors or my best friends. I just always had a beautiful reflection to someone to say to me that you can do this. And whether it was reading or pursuing journalism, I always felt encouraged and supported. And I think that's the the main takeaway from my experience is becoming an author and producer of the festival and so many other things. It's having a support system, being passionate and being able to identify what your vision is. And I've been able to say without a doubt that my purpose is to really be of service to other Black women and help uplift them in the literary space. And I, I gained so much joy from that. And I I didn't know that was what I was going to be doing when I was a freshman in college, but it just organically happened as I started pursuing my career and, you know, networking and meeting other people. 
it just started to just evolve in this really beautiful way. So years later, we have Well-Read Black Girl, but I know that seed was planted on the campus of Howard University. I like that because, and maybe this is just my own personal perspective of going to a PWI, a predominantly white institution, that it's not to say that you don't have professors that encourage and cultivate you, your skills, your interests. But I wonder if if it's something about going to an HBCU that it's like hashtag black excellence all around. And then, and then you're just really entrenched in that moment of, oh, you dig Toni Morrison too. And it's not like we have one week where we cover Toni Morrison and then that's it. (laughs) No, no, it's, it extends like, it's like the whole life cycle. Like I think back when I was a freshman, I taught at a, a school that was called the Maya Angelou Public Charter School. And I don't think I could have done that anywhere else but in D.C. as a student at Howard University. And those moments gave me, again, the sense of purpose. Like I'm, I'm helping other Black children. I'm working in the space with other Black students and working with Black professors. It just was around me 24-7 that I didn't have, I didn't have a chance to second guess it. And it took away any doubt I had when I was at a predominantly white school as, as a high school student. And then when I graduated, I just had this sense of, I mean, in a lot of regards, like I felt entitled to my self-worth and I felt like I could do anything and I didn't feel tokenized in any way because I knew that I was very deserving of it. And uh, Howard allowed that to happen. I also think I dreamed a lot about like becoming a writer as a child. I found that as I like reflect as a new mom, I think that sense of dreaming is also like a sense of planning in my own way. I was kind of planning to become a writer, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. And I just had to continuously think and meditate on it and manifest it. And it came to fruition through a lot of hard work, obviously, but it was a dream that I always had. I appreciate that reflection because I think as a person who also consumes, internalizes, and just loves to be in a space where there are stories that resonate and that are cognitively sticky, where I'm like, I get that. There's always like a divide, I think, when I speak to people who are writers versus people who enjoy reading other writers or people who just read books. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that people who read books, it's like, oh yeah, if you write, that's a, almost as if it's a hobby, that there's some sort of disconnect. And I think an extreme when you are dealing with people who are aficionados of books and are writers themselves, for them, they're like, no, I just always knew that this was going to be it. And didn't matter what my paying gig is or was, I embody this identity of a writer. And I think that's really interesting that for for you, you were this brown girl dreaming of writing. Yes, 100%. Yes, I, I, and I love the fact that you quoted Jacqueline Woodson. She's one of my favorite, favorite authors. I love Jacqueline Woodson so much. But I was, I was dreaming about what it would be like if I had my words on paper. And I think I was not pursuing money in any way. I was definitely pursuing purpose in every job I took from the moment I graduated now, it was, how does this fulfill my purpose and how does this allow me to be a better service? And I think that comes across on my platform. It comes across in the books that I write because I want them to be tools for other people to tell their own stories. That's very powerful and empowering to others with the well-read Black Girl Network. People oftentimes talk about not being able to see themselves and just only hoping and wishing that there are stories that are being told. And then when you feel empowered, then you're like, hey, I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to tell my story because I know there are other people like myself who want to see that life and experience reflected back at them. Now, I know that we both share the commonality of being children of immigrants. Yes. And you've talked about too, just at some point, attending Howard University, your father's alma mater, right? (laughs) To, To study journalism. So if you think back to your childhood and growing up a child of Nigerian immigrants, what or who motivated you to take on the path that you're on right now? I would say as a child of immigrant parents, my greatest motivation is my family. Um, growing up, my parents really encouraged me to do my best and I always wanted to make them proud. And I'm sure you have that same feeling of you want to make your parents proud. That is like mandatory 
and in the household of African parents, you know, and I did not become a doctor, a lawyer or engineer. So I had to make sure my creative pursuits were going to like be a strong livelihood and thank thank goodness (laughs) and moves in a direction where my mom isn't you know, inquiring if I can pay rent anymore. She is very excited to see the direction my career has gone in. And she's been a supporter from the very beginning. And from my mom, I definitely get this energy, uh, the sense of resilience, being positive. From my dad, I get this kind of calm confidence. My dad had this aura about him where he walked into the room, he could get it done, you know? And I, I, from both of them, they really inspired me to be my best self always. And I also think, being a child of immigrant parents brings across this feeling of being very solution oriented and resourceful because, you know, when they came here, my people came here from Nigeria, they didn't know what, you know, the United States was going to be like. They had to understand a whole other system and, and then plug into a system that is racist and does not tend to serve black and brown people. And they were able to, you know, accomplish so many things and raise three kids here and have success in their own ways. And now as a first generation child, I'm just so thankful. I'm thankful that they were able to instill these like very strong values of hard work and being of service and being of purpose. Like that my mom is very much like you have to give back. You have to be generous in who you are and tell people why you're doing these things. You know, like there's so much that is happening online now that can feel performative. And I can just remember doing things with my mom where it's like, like you, your why should be about your own self-interest and your own dignity and integrity and not for others. You know, it's like, I'm doing this because I want to help. I want to see people in a better place. And I try to manifest that in my day-to-day life. Like, so if if I'm sharing something, if I'm talking about something, it's the same thing that I would do in person with the individual. Like, I'm not just doing things just online. That's why it was so important for me to have the book and to I have hosted a festival because I wanted the people to come in contact with one another and really fellowship. And I don't know how how your household is, but like I know that did you have a lot of aunties and uncles, but they weren't really your auntie and uncle. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. You know, and, and you can't say that's like play auntie or whatever. No, that's auntie so and so. That's uncle right. So that's cousin, you know. Yeah, it's it's like this sense <laughs> of family. And I, I'm like I I when I say community, that's what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking right. of kids. And I'm thinking of how can we help each other in this industry of books that isn't wasn't built or designed for us to flourish. Like so, the idea of us buying each other's books and promoting one another. And if I have a literary agent that you can talk to, or if I have an editor that I think you'd be a good fit for, sharing information and being transparent around resources feels and feels very necessary and I definitely saw that within my parents like they shared information with other immigrants whether they were Nigerian or not they like worked together and they made a community out of no community and so that that really inspired me my family and now that I'm a new mother myself I'm trying to also instill that into my child. I want him to feel like he's part of a larger community. Honestly, when it comes to Black women in general, like Black women are constantly passing down stories to one another, generations after generations. And I think that's also something that is so dear to to me when I think about family and this idea of like, we need to keep legacies alive and pass things down to our children. Dad actually passed away two years ago. And I, when my son was born, I just like, I just saw his face and I just was like, oh my gosh, my dad is here. Like dad is like part of this experience, even though he's not in, uh, physically not here, but his spirit is here and he's like lives within my son. So I, I definitely channel that energy. And I think about the work that I'm doing as ancestral work too. So it's very important to me that like my background and my, my history as a, as a Nigerian American, like it shines through the work that I do. Even myself being a parent, it's just so interesting where there are things about your children and you can see your ancestors or those that came before you just manifest in these very interesting ways. And I think it's just a lovely reminder of people may not necessarily be there with you in the same sort of physical form that you may have been accustomed to, but they're always there and you see that. And you see that in the world around us. We see that in each other and it's very comforting. 
I like the thing that you had talked about too, around this notion that your parents instilled in you this, this idea around just being very giving and transparent in the sharing of information. And I would love for you to speak more on this yourself. I think it's so critical because I think about competition and, you know, the sector or the field of being a writer and then being a woman of writer and a person of color writer and, and a black woman writer in particular, just seems like how the industry is set up. It's so, it's such a small and finite space that as much as we want to engage in things that are that make cultural sense to how we engage with one another, like we're very much community oriented and focused and what have you, something about this space does not allow for that. So everyone's like, oh yeah, I support you, but um, I'm going to keep that agent to myself <laughs> because the agent, I don't want the agent to feel like, I got to choose between these two great writers as if there's not enough space for folks. Yeah, no, that's definitely a real, real concern because there is this feeling of things being very scarce and limited. And I have found that that is actually very false. The idea of sharing information and collaborating and working together is what will move us forward in uh, not only in the literary industry, in every industry, I, I think of cooperatives and I think of, you know, like political packs. The greatness happens when we are together and we're working in unison and there's more of us using our voice to harness our political power or our literary power, whatever it is. When we work together, we get more things done and we're more productive and we're more powerful. And I can recall when I was studying journalism, because I, I actually studied broadcast journalism. So there was this idea that it could only be, you know, one Black face on TV right. or, you know, one Black writer at the New York Times. And that is not accurate. You know, I've, I really look up to Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is an incredible journalist, and she kicked off the 1619 project that the New York Times has now won numerous awards. And what she found from the most brilliant Black writers to write about the 400th anniversary of slavery and they came together and made this beautiful production and now she has a Pulitzer Prize and that's like an actual example of how, you know, coming together actually help all of us. You know, if I have an opportunity, I want my fellow sister or brother to come in and have that opportunity too. And I think we have to really push back against this idea that there's only one and of this idea of tokenism. If we're going to work in community, we have to work together and we have to really find ways to create our own institutions or our own platforms that aren't dependent simply on someone, someone else giving us permission. And it's hard because we come up against problems, funding usually being the primary one. It's like there's sometimes it feels like there's not enough funding to go around, but there definitely is enough talent, you know, with our, you know, Black people are so multifaceted and so talented and we can get into the um, habit of, instead of thinking of the word competition, change that seat to collaboration. How can I work with this person instead? How can I, I like, learn from this person? How can this person be a mentor or a peer? Or like, how can this, how can we just reframe this idea around competition? I think that's like the priority for our communities because so many people come into the well-read Black girl community and walk away with an agent, walk away with a new editor, find a new job. Like I've seen that happen over the span of five years where people, they met their best friend at the book club or now they're a playwright because they, you know, were able to join a writing group with other writers in it. I mean, these, these very simple things that we don't think about are investments in one another. And I think that's really important to invest in yourself, but also invest in your community that you want to be a part of. For me personally, I have this whole mantra of you win, I win, we win. And notion of, you know, not to make it a dichotomous where it's just like, there's a winner, but then there's a loser, but it's just like, no, we're all winning whatever that winning path looks like. Right. And then what's for you is for you. What's for me is for me, but that doesn't mean that I can't cheer you on, support you, edify you, celebrate you. Exactly. That's to say, and not to say that like all black folks are just like one, you know, but we right. definitely are a nuanced, faceted in so many different ways. And and I'm not simply supporting another person simply just because they're black. I mean, that's part of it, but it's like, that's not the only thing. And I think when we go into these spaces, uh, sometimes the agents or the editors, it's like, oh, well, I already have my black editor or my, my black writer. And I mean, that's ridiculous. There's not, there's not only one, there's like, so, I mean, even within this conversation, 
you you were sharing about your Caribbean family. I'm sharing about my Nigerian family. Like there's just so much there, just so much of the black diaspora that we can unpack and learn from and be encouraged by that it's there's not only one in any regard. What's that pivotal moment that confirmed to you that you want to work in this space? Black people in general have an intimate knowledge of how power and the lack of it shows up in our daily lives. And I think that with the Well-Read Black Girl manifesting and growing into such a powerful space, it made me feel like, okay, I have a responsibility to give back and I want to show that show others that they can do the same thing. So whether they want to become authors themselves or whether they want to produce some kind of amazing event, whether it's a festival or maybe a film or artwork, whatever creative endeavor they have, that they can do it and they can look to me as an example. And I think the moment that really kind of changed things for me was when I did publish my book in 2018, because that was like a really eye-opening experience. I didn't think that I was going to get a book deal from that that was as I was you know building the platform and at that time I probably still had only maybe like 50,000 followers it was a it was a small oh, just 50,000 I know there's some influencers with millions and millions it's all relative but <laughs> I was very pleased with it and I was excited by the response but I did not think it would it would sharing into a book. I really did it. Like I always thought that like my book writing would come from something from a journalism like pursuit. Like I wasn't sure how, but I didn't think it would be this. And so when the agent reached out to me and when I ended up like connecting with my editor and finally writing writing it and putting it all together and going through that whole process, that was the moment that it came very real to me. It's not just on Instagram. It's not just a social media following. It is a book that will live in a library, on a bookshelf, in a school forever. And people will be able to reference this just like I reference Mari Evans and how I reference Tony K. Bambara and like all these incredible writers that I have on my shelf that wrote their books years and years ago that someone else can have that same experience with my book. And that really felt very affirming and life-changing. And it's how I thought about the process to a whole another level, keyword being responsibility, like how I'm working with young people, how I'm thinking about the future and legacy. I'm excited for my son to read the book and, you know, learn about his mom in a different way, you know, and now I'm working on another book and I have another anthology coming out. So I feel very grateful to have that opportunity and to have people read my words and be inspired by them. Act two, The Road. Your first anthology, the Well-Read Black Girl Anthology, its premise asks its contributors to reflect on how Black girls become Black women writers. So I think I'd be curious to hear you speak on is how do you decide to show up in these literary spaces? First as a Black or African descended person, then as a Black woman today, especially when we are in this current hashtag climate of hashtag Me Too, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag Cite Black Women movements, not only here in the U.S., but also Mm -hmm. globally. That's a brilliant question. Well-read Black girl definitely is a form of activism, and there is a direct connection between language and politics for Black women. And I think of the words of like Sojourner Truth to Patrice Cullors, who was the, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter movement. It is so important for us to have a clear appreciation and celebrate the Black identity. And again, not to see us as one set of people, but this idea that we're distinct and we're nuanced and there's context and we have a rich history. And that comes in drama, that comes in art, that comes in music. And I think it's really important for everyone to harness their voices. And I try to walk into a space and I think of myself as a person who's collecting and curating and trying to harness those voices. I really see myself as the connector in a lot of spaces. And I'm introducing others. I'm trying to share resources. And I'm also learning in the process too. One of my biggest fears around all of this, the the tension sometimes feels a little bit overwhelming. Sometimes I'm worried I'm not going to say the right thing. And I have to, you know, set aside those fears and think about how I can help. And when I think about that, when I really focus on helping others and being a conduit, that helps me just move forward in those spaces, whether I'm the only Black girl in the room or I'm hosting the festival and I'm surrounded by a 
amazing Black women who are so brilliant. Like last year when we had the festival, one of my heroes is Dr. Sadia Hartman. And the fact that she was there and on stage, reading from her book, telling us about what it means to be a wayward woman. Like I just was just so floored and enamored. And there's so much that I don't know. I just want to learn. I really walk into spaces like I'm open. I want to learn. And if I'm wrong about something, please correct me. If I'm right about something, please give me recognition. Please cite me. I just want all those things to be seen that like I'm like a person that's growing and wants to do my very best. And I think about that whenever I'm walking into the room. And I just always am trying to be myself. I always want to be honest about the things I do and don't know and ask questions. And I'm curious. And I think of Well We're a Black Girl as a space where you can investigate and learn about things that are new to you, whether you're learning from an academic or you're reading a book from a YA author or you're reading a poem that motivates you to write your own. It's a learning space and its own form of activism where we're like learning from one another and we're making community in a way that is honest and real. Well, I have two follow-up questions on that. One of them is really around this notion of, well, how do you not fangirl out when you have these people that you- But I do. I I am forever telling somebody, I'm like, I love your work. Like, that's why I still get so, I get so excited and people, you seem so enthusiastic. Like, I am. I like really love everyone that I work with and I admire them, like whether it's Jacqueline Woodson or Imani Perry or Tiari Jones. Like there's all these people that I really, really love. And I can recall moments where I was like reading their books in my dorm room or on the bus, like going to, to work or on the subway. And now that they are part of my community in the realest sense too. It's not just they show up one time, like they have supported me and really been advocates for me. They've really, really helped me amplify what well-read Black girl means. And I couldn't do the work without their support. I think there's so much to say about advocating for others. If Jacqueline Woodson is going to big me up, I, I, of course I'm going to big up the next person and help them feel that same magic because that's what keeps this moving. I hope one day in the future, a young girl will say, oh, I was motivated by something Lori did or something she wrote. And they'll feel that same surge of energy to write, to tell stories, to create whatever it is. We're paying it forward in our own ways. Trust me, I fangirl out. I do. Like right now during quarantine, I've been rereading all of Edgewich Dandicat's work. I absolutely love her writing. Rereading Crick Crack. And I've been reading, uh, actually I have like right next to me, Create Dangerously. Like I've just been reading every single book that I can get my hands on. Brother, I'm dying. Like I, I like have been going through everything. And as I'm rereading it, I'm just in awe of her writing, but also like studying her craft, how she structures her sentences, how she tells stories. And I do that with so many of the people that I admire. Like I reread a lot and I tend to listen to a lot of books on audio too because that just helps me see it in a new way. When I was working on my first anthology, Lynn Nottage wrote this beautiful essay about the color purple and rereading Alice Walker and rereading it as a young woman and then rereading it again as a mother and how her perspective changed and how she interacted with the characters changed. And I think that's a good practice for anyone who wants to be a writer, aspiring to be lifelong writer and be a really great one, like to this idea of studying the people that you admire most and looking at their work with fresh eyes. It's, it's really been helpful for me. So I, I encourage others to do it. I love that sage advice, but it also gives perspective because then you're not this passive consumer of these words, but not only do you see see yourself maybe in the characters or situations, but the timelessness of these words. Right. How you are when you read the book when you were 12 versus when you're 24 versus when you're like 48. And then when you're 72, it's going to be very different because you're bringing yourself to the story in a very different way because now you've lived, you've had other kinds of experiences. Exactly. Like you're bringing your life experience to it and you just have a new appreciation for the words as you mature. Yeah. How do you see this work translate globally, particularly your first anthology? Because I think that even a lot of the writers that you included and very interesting, diverse, and you're right, that Blackness, African descended people, we're not a monolith. And so everyone's perspectives were slightly different. They were nuanced and that people, their ancestors came from different places, whether they were based in the U.S. or through the throughout the America 
Americas. But how do you see the sort of work sitting abroad on the other side of the pond? What's been the reception from others? Are people really seeing, wow, I get what Black Lives Matter means when I read this book and I'm in Uganda or I'm in Italy, I'm in South Africa. I think what's great about the anthology is it allows you to understand Blackness in a different way. I think so many of right now with the, the uprising and so many of the protests, a lot of the book lists have been around academic books where it's like, you know, how to be anti-racist, which is an incredible book by Dr. Ibram Kendi. You know, things that kind of lay out this format of how to be, you know, it's almost like instructions and history lessons, which we need and are so vital. But what my book offers is this emotional connection of, of womanhood and Black womanhood in particular, and how one discovers themselves. It is almost like an interior conversation the reader is having with the essayist. And I think that is very important. Within the opening essay, Jasmine Moore talks about how she was a young girl and the books she discovered and how that allowed her to have the, the strength to write her own story and the reality, how she closes the essays, like she didn't see herself on those pages until she wrote her own page, like until she wrote her own book, you know? It's like, so you can have these really intense emotional moments with the writers and see that they're trying to become their best selves or trying to understand what race and class and gender, how it empowers or disenfranchises them as they're writing. So you're like, and, and that's what I really strive for when I'm writing. Like I want, I want people to feel emotionally connected to the writing. I want them to see who the person is and you can make your own assessment on how you want to move forward after you read it. And I hope it opens up their, their eyes to discrimination and this idea that, you know, not everyone has it there. Quite honestly, it's just like some things are really unfair and there's and there's a reason for that. It's because of discrimination, you know, it's because of sexism, it's because of patriarchy. And I don't have to be so blatant and obvious in saying those words, but reading the essays and analyzing them and being thoughtful with them should allow that to come across. And the next time you encounter a young Black woman who is trying to, you know, live her best life, maybe you'll be more sensitive and empathetic. Maybe, you know, that is my hope. But I think that's why the book has been coming up on a lot of reading lists. And, and I also offer a lot of suggestions on what to read next. So in between each of the chapters, there's tons of reading lists. And I did that on purpose because I didn't want a person to say, I've never heard of a Black playwright. I've never, you know, read a, a, a book written, a book of science fiction written by a Black woman. Like that, that was just so insane to me. So whether you're an educator or just like a person who wants to expand their bookshelf, I have tons and tons of recommendations from incredible Black women. And you can't say it doesn't exist. You can't say you don't have a list to go to. So, I mean, there's just so much beauty in, in being a Black woman. And I'm so proud. A young Black girl who grew into a Black woman who's really trying to amplify the voices of other Black women and, and now everyone's saying, pass the mic. But I'm just like, we've been holding the mic. Come on, let's like sing into it and let's be loud and let's be ourselves 100%. And let's not close switch. That's like a whole thing too. You know, I hope that's what the book showed. And if, if anything, I think the biggest critique and the biggest, you know, next step for me was to have more voices from across the pond, you know, have more voices reflective Nigerian Americans or, you know, Afro Latinas. Like there's just so much I could have added more Caribbean writers. Like there's so much I could have added where I can see it now. I'm like, oh, I wish I had added this essayist or told this story, you know, I'm just always more. There's always more to be improved upon. And I'm hoping to do that with future anthologies, just make sure they're more inclusive and have more varied voices. Because the majority of the writers are Black American, but their benefit just to have more voices from other places and be representative of the whole Black diaspora. There are always people who are going to provide their criticism about, well, this is what you should have done and what have you. But I do <laughs> love the intentionality in terms in terms of how you were able, you divided up the book and then in those transitions you have your list because in many ways that's what you provide online it's part of the network where yes, it's just like exactly. oh this month this is what we're reading and I'm like oh I heard about that book is that coming out oh it's out okay or oh, I, I thought it just came out it came out six months ago but okay like <laughs> I need to get on and I'm, I'm really behind that in terms of your individual path what failures have you experienced and how did you turn things around 
Oh, wow. That's a great question. Failure, you know, in a very loose way. It's, I think that sometimes we can think about, hey, I intended to do this thing and it just did not work out in that moment. And then you fast forward and you realize that it wasn't necessarily a failure, but it was something that I needed to experience because it brought clarity. It helped me consider some other things that I hadn't thought about previously. And then I still ended up where I needed and wanted to be, but it was just something that was just different. I think there were so many, once I graduated, there were so many different like ways I thought or directions I thought my career would go in. Like I really wanted to work. I'm, I'm, again, I'm from Washington DC originally. And I thought I would like work at the Washington Post or work at like NBC, you know, one of the local news stations. Like I just had this idea and again and again, I would apply to things and be rejected and really feel, just feel bad about not being able to get into these certain institutions. And I think those failures or those rejections allowed me to be more resourceful in creating my own opportunities or looking for things that were outside. Look, if you look at my resume now, it is so unconventional. I've done so many different things. I've worked at startups. I've worked at arts organizations. I've been a grant writer. I've been a producer. I just have been able to use my skills and allow them to transition into other spaces. And I think those very early rejections allowed me not to give up on myself and think of new ways to be innovative and and bet on myself, if that makes sense. Like, I just was like, okay, like if once, you know, once I got over the boohoo, like, oh, you didn't pick me. It's like, okay, I pick myself. <laughs> and so, and that has always been my greatest gift. And again, I think my mama, because she's, she's definitely instilled a sense of resilience in me. And I still, even when I don't get something, I still feel like I deserve it. And I think this idea of like, we are worthy, we deserve the absolute best. And we have to like, once we mourn the things that we think that we want and move on to new things, it's like the better to just like keep going and also working at these startup spaces. I have seen firsthand, most people do not know what they're doing. They are constantly just experimenting and then turning things over very quickly. And their biggest advantage that they have is usually capital. And if folks like ourselves get a little bit more capital, we could be on the same playing field because it's just people that are experimenting and pivoting and moving quickly to the next idea. Failure now is like the greatest learning experience and I'm not afraid to fail. I'm also not afraid to tell folks when I don't know something. I don't put on any ears. If I do not know something, I will say it to you. I will ask you questions. I probably will ask you too many questions. That has also been a benefit to Well-Read Black Girl because I I did not know what the ins and outs of the publishing industry was. I didn't know what I was supposed to do or not supposed to do. Who else? Like I just did what I wanted to do. And then people would come to me like, oh, how did you do that? And I'm like, I just did it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I wasn't asking anyone permission. And that allowed me to set my own path and have my own platform and, you know, keep moving forward. And now, like when you look on Instagram, now there's so many amazing Black bookstagrammers and they they tag me and they note me as an inspiration. And I think that's amazing. I think that the it's reading. Why would I want there to be less readers? <laughs> you know, like I see them as part of my tribe and I like big them up and, and I want them to have as many followers as I do. Like I want there to be so many platforms where Black writers can be highlighted and encouraged and loved on because that's the point. Uh, what I don't want is them to be exploited by white institutions. I don't want that. You know, I, I want us to be fair and equitable in all regards. But I think that those ideas of failure also are attributed to youth. I think that's so when you're young and you're just trying to figure things out, that's like what is expected. Not necessarily this clear cut, like it was like you went left or you went right. But there are certain situations that teaches you things about, not just you, but about the space in which you're traversing in. And things for you to be like, oh, now I know. So this is how I can move in this way. Or just even realizing that I'm putting so much emphasis on the external stuff that yeah. is distracting away from my internal and that I am worthy of all exactly. that. And then sometimes the box that's already set before me isn't doesn't work for me. And so it's exactly. okay for me to create my own box or create a different rectangle, a circle, something else. 
Exactly. It's always so amazing. I have a good friend where she got this amazing job, like, you know, and she was there for a little bit. And so she calls me and she's like, I'm going to quit. And we were like, what? you know, it's like, you've been there, what, like two months and like, you can't do it. Like, this is what you've been working your whole life for, like your, your law degree, your MBA, your this and that. And then you get to this place and you're like, oh, wait, I don't like it. And that happens so many times to people where you think you want this one thing and you get there and you're like, actually, this doesn't feel like what I thought it would feel like. I'm not finding enjoyment. This is no longer my passion. And you have to learn how to sunset things and or mourn them and say goodbye and move on to the next. And I think sometimes people get caught up in this idea like, but I'm supposed to be this way. Like I'm, you know, I have to be here for whatever reason. And that's not a real thing. Like you set your own boundaries and standards. And if you get somewhere and you're, you don't, want to do the thing anymore you can quit my friend quit and we I mean we were all shocked and surprised but she knew her truth and she knew that it wasn't a good fit for her despite all the that you know that time and energy she invested and that time and energy doesn't go anywhere it's like still part of her it's still part of her learning experience but when she got to that destination she didn't want to be there anymore and that's okay and I think like those are the, the moments that we need to be forgiving and more compassionate on ourselves and say that it's okay to change your mind it's okay to say no to something like it's okay to, to change and grow and have new ideas and dreams Three, where we land. Glory, what are you most excited about personally, professionally? What do you have going on? Oh my goodness. So right now I am planning the first ever virtual Well-Read Black Girl Festival. Because of quarantine and everything that's happening in the state of the world, we are moving the festival for 2020 online. So I'm planning everything. I'm getting authors together. I'm figuring out how to do workshops and craft seminars. And it's really exciting, but it's also very new. So I'm just trying to be very thoughtful about the curation process and how to engage people in a way um, that's so different than being in person. We're so used to like standing next to each other and giving hugs and doing book signings. So this is going to be a different experience, but I think it's going to be so incredible. I'll be able to reach more people online internationally and the audience will be bigger because it won't be how many can fit maybe 500 people or a thousand people in a room it could be just way bigger yeah I'm, I'm really excited about that this year and I'm also working on a second anthology which is going to be published with Norton and the focus is um, black girlhood in short stories so I'm looking at a series of short stories from Dorothy West and Paul Marshall and Tony K. Bambaras. So I'm curating them and I'm looking at the characters as they're coming of age and who they are and the decisions they make. So I'm really putting together a very thoughtful collection around that. And short stories are one of my favorite, favorite things. So I'm excited to kind of share that with the world. And lastly, I'm working on a memoir project too about the relationship between me and my mom and her just being an inspiration and her her battle with depression and how she was able to like overcome that in an amazing way. So it really serve as a great example for our family. So I'm working on a lot of things. And then I, I'm a new mom too, which you mentioned. Though all these things happen during his nap time. <laughs> that's when we're the most productive and efficient. No, I, I love that. And that's exciting to hear about all the different things that you have going on in, in the pot. And I like the memoir slant as well in terms of you focusing on your um, relationship with your mother, especially now in terms of where you are in your lived experience as being a mother yourself. And I think the timeliness in terms of talking about mental health and mental wellness as well particularly amongst African descended folks where for so long, even in the literature, you're reading things and you're kind of reading in between the lines, like, is this person, you know, struggling with a particular illness or situation? But it's, it's always couched as, oh, so-and-so aunt, so-and-so had, a, had to leave. Right. Like, Just pray about it. Just pray about it. Right. Exactly. And so I really do like that you have these very interesting projects too, that are happening simultaneously, but they're doing different things. You know, one's very, 
personal in terms of familial, but then also another one is still very much revealing about who you are, your interests, the things that speak to your heart song in terms of the literature. And I think my my last question about your projects in particular is just how do you then go about the process of even identifying, even for your first anthology, who's going to be a part of it? And then now with the second anthology, when there's a plethora of so many different stories, like how does one narrow it down? Like that would be stressful. Honestly, if I, if my desk wasn't so messy right now, I'm at my desk. I would. I wish I could show you my desk because there are just <laughs> books and books and books everywhere. And I think sometimes people don't realize how many books you have to read to write a book. You know, you have to do Absolutely. so much like research and citing and thinking. And I'm really doing a lot of rereading of books that I read as a child. And then I also have kind of this running list in my head of things that uh, books that I just can't forget you know so if a story just sticks with you for years and years and years I'm like oh that has to go in because that was like my story so for example I have here drinking coffee elsewhere Cece Packer is you know just the queen of short story collections and that's her her one book like I was always like when is she gonna write another book and I know she's an incredible accomplished academic and professor but that that collection is one of my favorites same thing with Dorothy West I absolutely love her so yeah I just like do a lot of rereading and right now I'm actually thinking of looking for coming of age stories that are more gender non-conforming and you know have a different lens on what it means uh, to grow up and uh, you know looking at girlhood in a different way so yeah I'm just rereading a lot like I, I go to archives I go to libraries I'm just digging 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 I found this amazing collection the one short story collection that Rita Dove wrote I found that reading that for the first time there's just so much reading that has to be done um, there is an author that I had read a long time ago that I want her to be in the collection her name is Zaina Johnson she has this great story called uh, Melvin in the sixth grade and talks about a young girl who has a crush on a boy like she lives in West Covina in California and this boy moves from Oklahoma and they're, you know, they're so different. She's new to the neighborhood in California and he's new to, you know, to California in general because he's from Oklahoma. And it's like the cutest story and brings up all the feels of like having your first crush, you know. And I don't know how many people are familiar with Dana Johnson or not, but she's just, she's a great short story, story writer. So things like that. Like I, I just kind of use my heart to figure things out. That's another thing I feel people need to be mindful of, what really speaks to them and how, like what gives them joy. Because if it brings you that much joy and, and you can't forget it, maybe that will be, other people will receive it the same way. I think it's going to be a long time to like trust it when I say something I'm like I, I feel really confident and I think people need to be mindful of their taste like if you feel like you have good taste you can curate things you know own that and share that because it does mean something and like there's not it's hard to put a value on that in like the corporate world it's like that kind of emotional connection to thing but it is such a great skill set and I, I see that now as an adult I didn't see that as a younger person. And you've dropped so many gems throughout in terms of audience takeaways. Just to highlight, I recall you were talking about the fact, just this notion around community and collaboration. And even though you learned that particular values set from your parents around houses that you engage and see your purpose through the reading network and all the things that you do through the festival and through your engagement with others. You know, I think that's so important, just, you know, operating that framework work. And then being able to just how you show up in spaces and owning it and not apologizing for it. And that sometimes we may take a path and with the pivot, we might create something else. But it's that entrepreneurial spirit, I think, is at heart in terms of some of yes. the things we talked about. Yes. I think there's practical parts of entrepreneurship that you can learn and that you got to know the accounting side of this and you got to pay your taxes. And even before you make the great leap, I do encourage folks saving some money that does work you should don't go out here being broke but like <laughs> all those things are practical things that you can learn and then there's also the, the other side of it where you know everyone deserves to have a career that taps into their passions and allows them to have great joy and I think if you can find that joy and really hold on to it it makes the the logistics and the hard work just it, it makes it easier. It's always going to be days where you're like, oh, I don't want to do this, or you're frustrated, or you're going to come up against things that feel like barriers. But 
if you're truly, truly passionate, you'll continue and you'll persevere and it'll keep growing. And I think there's something beautiful about the longevity of things too. Like I'm really excited to see, you know, I'm, I'm hitting year five soon, but I can't wait to see what this looks like in 10 years. I can't wait to see what it looks like when I step away from it. And maybe someone else that like, comes in and fills a role as an executive director, or, or maybe I go back and do something with my alma mater at Howard. And, you know, it's just, just so many things that I'm open to and I'm receptive that I just kind of, I, I do my best to stay open. Just whatever comes my way, whatever opportunity, I try to say yes when it's when I feel like it's going to serve the greater goal, my greater mission. And I think lastly, I'll just add to that, you know, continuously trying to surround yourself with Black men, like-minded people that will support you and invest in you and really will love on you. That's really important. Like, I just can't say enough about, like, my friends who have helped me, women in the book club that were there when there were only 10 people in a room. Because we don't talk about that enough. I really did the first year I started it, it was like 10 of us. It really was 10 of us meeting once a month, talking, sharing things on social every once in a while. But that first year, it wasn't it wasn't as big and amazing as it is now. I mean, it was still amazing, but like, it just was different. It was like totally different. So as the community changes, the how I interact with it changes too. So, you know, I love the community, but I'm not going to like be sharing like baby pictures and things like that. Because I also have to have like boundaries and, sh- you know, keep things to myself and protect my family too. There's, there's just like different things that I have to be mindful of when you start to get more popularity or more visible on social media. And I think if you are a person where social media is an important part of your promotion and stuff, you just have to set your boundaries. It's not a bad thing if you want to share like your, you know, your kids and things, but you just have to set your boundaries and your, how you interact and always be honest in that too. Just like be honest because someone sees you on the street and they want to take a picture of you and they want to do something. You got to be able to say yes or no. <laughs> I'm great. I'm great with in person. I love talking to people. I love sharing information that but I really want the work always to be focused on the books and the writing and less um, on my personal life. That makes it greater as an organization because it's not just Glory's organization. It's all of ours. When I when I met Oprah, I met her for like 2.5 seconds. Uh, it was great because everybody was like, oh my God, it feels like I met her too, you know? And I'm like, that's great. That's, what, that's how I wanted to be. I wanted to feel like we're all in this. We're reading together. We're celebrating together. We're, you know, sharing information. Like it's a, it's a us thing. It's a we thing. It's not just an I. So, thankful that you're able to just share so much, particularly about your journey of belonging to Blackness. I think this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. I, I think that you're doing an incredible job with this podcast and this project because it's so important for us to know where we're from and be proud of that and celebrate that. And I think what is going to be so important for us moving forward is knowing our talents and not downplaying them. And I think mm-hmm. you have identified your talent. You have an incredible talent as a writer and as a podcast host. And it's important for you to continue to share that with the world. Share it with the world. Thank you so much. From, from your lips to the ether to the heavens, all of that. Thank you so much. <laughs> there you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.